This podcast is a production of the Johns Hopkins University Press. To learn more, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals. Thank you for tuning in to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. My name is Brian Shea, and I am the Public Relations and Advertising Coordinator in the Journals Division. Earlier this year, Shakespeare Bulletin released a special issue titled Reanimating Playbooks, Editing for Performance, Performance for Editing. The issue sprung from a 2013 symposium at Stratford-upon-Avon. The essays in the issue looked at specific challenges facing those who edit and perform Renaissance drama. Cassie Ash and Jose Perez-Diaz, who guest edited the issue along with Emma Smith, joined us to talk about the project. Thank you for joining me today, Cassie and Jose. Cassie, tell me, the, the issue came out of a 2013 symposium. How hard is it to transform a live event like that into a printed journal issue? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Well, first, I think we should give a little credit to Marianne O'Connor, who was one of our speakers that day, and suggested that we look into doing it's publishing conference proceedings. And that, I think, really got my brain and Jose's brain working to think about the afterlife of that event, which until that point, we had been thinking about as a collaborative event specifically to have a live conversation and get feedback and give feedback and really allow people a chance to propose some questions that didn't yet have answers. And I tend to think about publications as questions that are now in process of being answered. So part of the difficulty, I suppose, was just readjusting our mindset. But then it wasn't really so much difficult in terms of tricky, <laughs> although there was a lot of mental labor and love put into it, it just took a long time. And uh, that's because, in part, we had to look for a time when our proposal could fit into the Shakespeare Bulletin uh, line of offerings as a special issue. So really, it's like two and a half years in the making. And that may have been the most difficult part for me, <laughs> at least, in terms of keeping my mind moving forward for everyone, thinking about deadlines, thinking about how we could keep our conversations that were so alive at the day of the symposium alive in newer, longer form pieces. Jose, this being such a long process, what did you learn from going through the whole thing from the symposium to finally seeing the printed edition out? Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, well, uh, it was a wonderful project to, to work on uh, from the very start. I mean, the, the symposium was, was so interesting, and there were so many things that, that came out of that, and so many conversations, as Cassie was saying. But I think we learned a great deal about how to manage uh, you know, this kind of collaborative project, a big group of scholars working together with different interests, different background, coming from different backgrounds. And, of course, we had the, the wonderful opportunity of working with Emma Smith, who is just such a, such a wonderful and generous scholar, uh, and she brought her enormous experience uh, to the project uh, of editing other collections of, uh, of essays and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the content of, of the issue, I think we were very lucky to have different approaches to the, to the central issue, to the central topic. So, for example, we, brought, uh, we all brought different experience and, and, and different when we came from different backgrounds. For example, Cassie, uh, Abigail Rogerson Woodall and Nora Williams uh, have very strong have very, a very strong theatre backgrounds as, as performers. I mean, Abigail, for, for example, was a, a professional actress for many years before going to Cambridge and getting a PhD. Um, and Stephen Purcell, for example, has has his own theatre company, uh, the Pantaloons in, in in Warwickshire. 
and for example, on the on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we had Janelle Genstad and Brett Hirsch, uh, who are more sort of hardcore bibliographers and editors, but they are still very sensitive to the needs of, of performers when we are dealing with with, with these uh, Renaissance texts. So we all brought different things and different ideas, um, and the challenge, of course, was to to try and put together a coherent issue um, around you know this central topic. At the end of the day, we were all working towards a common goal uh, from very different angles. Yeah, Cassie, getting into the topic of the issue with new editions, you, you kind of touched on this some. How important is the growth of technology when dealing with this topic? Well, I think it's very important, but this question is so interesting to me because we're talking about the growth of technology from the very first editions published. We're talking about technology and transmission of text as a form of technology right from, say, anything being published in the 1500s, right. 1600s to today. So bibliography is a study of technology, and we're just continuing in that tradition, really. I think it's just a natural part of the discussion. And I think, for me, what's most important is the question of access. Moving from a manuscript being circulated among friends into a printed text that could be purchased by the public, moving into a series of editions of that text, moving into digital editions of that text. These are all questions of expanding access, which means expanding the conversation. Mm -hmm. It means being more interdisciplinary. It means allowing new speakers to come in. And I think that that is just really exciting for me. Everyone, actually, I think, in this in this issue talks about technology in some way, or at least technological transmission. But there are two examples that I, I was this question prompted me to think harder about, which is that the Fair M edition that Hirsch and Formby are working on, which is discussed in the Hirsch and Jensted article, is, is a great way of allowing technology to not just speculate on the possibilities of what happens in the play, but to give immediate comparative analysis of ways that the, tra the play has been treated already. And this is something that exists because in an uh, it can exist because in a an electronic edition, we have the ability to continue to add to that very edition and also to let you use different modes of reading a play or looking at a play. Literally, you can be looking at the text or you can toggle over and look at some sort of video or listen to an audio recording. That is a brand new right. option for us in making editions. Also, Abigail's uh, interviews with directors gives a really interesting glimpse of the way texts are deconstructed and then reconstructed into scripts, which is funny because they were scripts to begin with. Mm -hmm. But it's another way of looking at how the technology that we have, say printed editions, is pulled apart and reformed to the use of the practitioner. Every article has a, has a different angle of looking at that process, either from performance into the printed text or the written text or the written text into performance. Steve Purcell talks about that. And I think that not everyone is using the word technology, but we're all talking about it in different ways. Jose, was the value of looking at new editions in, in a real-time context for performers? I mean, Cassie touched on a little bit. These are you know, being torn apart and put back together because ultimately they are for performance, which can, can, can take many different varieties. It doesn't have to be beholden to the original way it was done. Yeah. Well, I think most modern editors will agree that when we edit plays that were once performed, 
uh, we're dealing with texts that are not just meant to be read silently. And this is something that, you know, some people will not agree with. But, you know, they are meant to be spoken aloud and actioned by performers. Uh, so our main focus in this special issue is, of course, the drama of the English Renaissance, particularly beyond Shakespeare. Um, I mean, Shakespeare's plays have, have been edited so frequently that they are, they are so regularly performed that, you know, uh, they are permanently revisited in production. Uh, but, for example, what do we do? What do we do with texts that are not so frequently performed? Uh, so, for example, in my own uh, contribution to the issue, um, I, I look at a 1615 play by John Fletcher and Philip Massinger, uh, Love's Cure or The Martial Maid, uh, which I have recently edited. As it happens with every single play text from the period, you know, the original text in the 1647 uh, Bowman and Fletcher folio, it is tremendously faulty. You know, it lacks entrances, exits, stage directions are not complete, mm -hmm. uh, many ne necessary actions are not in the text at all, uh, to the point that sometimes, sometimes it is really very difficult to know what is actually going on on stage. And so, you know, I had the challenge of, of, of looking at this text from that, from that perspective. And I managed to negotiate these difficulties by assembling a group of actors and studying the text as it works in real time. Uh, and what we found as a group was that some of my assumptions as to how the text works in performance were actually wrong. Uh, so no editor in four centuries had been able to solve the, these cruxes, mm -hmm. uh, basically because they, they had not uh, attempted to, to perform it with a group of actors. And, of course, if we look at the opposite direction, you know, from the edited text to the performance, uh, well, it is crucial for editors to understand what actors and directors are looking for in a modern edition and what they need. Uh, and that is where, as Cassie was saying, um, the interviews that, that Abigail, Rockers and Woodall um, uh, conducted, uh, they do, do very well. They reveal, for example, that the standard practice of, say, you know, directors at the RSC, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and at the National Theatre, they normally have multiple uh, editions of, of the play in the rehearsal room. And, and for, for some reason, actors and directors seem to have a very special veneration for the Arden Shakespeare series. Uh, but they all say that, you know, they are too lit literary, they, they are too detailed, you know, the notes are very long, and sometimes they are not helpful for a performer. Um, so, you know, when we are thinking of, of how to conceptualise these texts, how to annotate them, uh, well, we need to think about ways of providing... Uh, staging options, performance annotations, things that, that actors will find uh, useful at the end of the day. Um, and, of course, Cassie, in, in her own article, uh, refers to, to, to this issue when, when she, she deals with annot the annotation of proverbs and, and proverbial language. How do, we, uh, the, how, how do we face the challenges of making these proverbs understandable um, um, and, and actionable to modern audiences? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have Steve Purcell in this article, you know, on clowning and improvisation and very usefully thinking about the ways that those techniques interact with the Renaissance playtext. And then we have Nora Williams's study uh, of the performance of Asides in Middleton's Changeling, um, looking at how directors have edited the text in production and how they, they've, they've looked at, you know, uh, how the Asides are, uh, are conceptualized in the text and, and how they, they change from production to production. Um, and ultimately, these modern editions, they need to make these plays available for readers, uh, as well as for actors and directors, uh, who will in the end, I mean, the performance will be the, the, the ones responsible for reanimating, uh, taking up the, the title of the special issue, reanimating these plays in new productions. Um, I mean, I remember always Gregory Doran, the, the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, saying that, that some of these plays from the English Renaissance are not performed because they are not performed. 
uh, people don't know them, performers don't know them, and they, you know, they are just not revived, and, and wonderful jewels of that repertory just you know, languish in the, in the archive, and, and they are not done. So, you know, editors have a huge responsibility to make these wonderful texts available. Um, and you have to tailor the edition so that it is usable and, and useful uh, for performance. And perhaps, as Cassie was, was saying a, a second ago, it, that, that is where the digital editions that, that Janelle Jenstad and Brett Hirsch write about in their articles come in. Sometimes big publishing companies don't want to publish editions of plays that are not popular. I mean, this restrict, restricts the market to Shakespeare and, say, a dozen of, of well-known plays. Right. Uh, but what online editions enable is the possibility of making these plays universally accessible without having to think of their marketability. It, it's for a variety of audiences. It's not just for the one person who w wants to read it. It is for the performers and other people as well. Exactly. Um, Cassie, how can this discussion extend beyond Renaissance dramas? It's obviously where it's focused, but I'm sure this is an issue for all kinds of uh, theatrical areas. I think it is. And I think that the way it could really expand is by being interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's actually maybe what we, possibly what Jose and I succeeded at most in both organizing the symposium and then translating it into a special issue is that all the articles represent really different types of methodologies. And I think in the variety of angles of focus and the varieties of methods of practice and just the varieties of questions that our contributing authors have asked, we really represent a sort of interdisciplinary, though focused on Renaissance drama in this example, mm -hmm. um, way of exploring one specific issue, one specific topic. I mean, that's, that's, I think, what is exciting to me about the special issue and was exciting on the day of the symposium, that Jose and I could say, hey, <laughs> let's talk about these editions and the users of these editions and what we're really trying to get at with them and how we're trying to use them uh, or how we hope that our work can be used. And people came with this huge variety of ideas and I, I mean, I really think that that's the same sort of practice that we can apply to many different types of, uh, well, time periods of drama or uh, countries of origin of drama right. or even other types of literature. And I suppose what that boils down to is thinking harder about the users and not the creators. I guess not so much what the editor wants to get out of it, but what <laughs> the end users want, need to get out of it. Well, I think it is a curiously underexplored area, at least in Renaissance drama, so that, this is like folding back in on your question, <laughs> but if you take a look at the sort of major edition series and take a look at who their users are in their sort of general introductions, I think you see a lot of overlap. And in that overlap, there's also a huge number of targeted users who I think don't always have the same needs from an edition, like a student and a professional actor don't need the same things. Right. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of space devoted in print to exploring how we can actually help those different types of users or even just experimenting with what they may be wanting from an edition. Because, of course, 
no editor wants to sacrifice solid bibliographical work, and I certainly don't want them to, in order to aim their edition at a possibly limited market, as Jose was saying. But this doesn't limit itself to Renaissance drama, because every year, uh, the contemporary references in any given play are a year further out of date, or out of currency, or have changed based on new information or new political players or new um, societal organizations or feelings. And so the work of an editor is always going to be alive because part of what we do is provide the context for the thing already in print, (laughs) whether it's a play or a novel or a poem. And I think that thinking about the user is a one good way to provide appropriate context, but also reminding yourself that other editors come with other areas of expertise. Talking to each other is a good way of making sure that that context remains as sort of holistic as possible. Because we can't all be philologists and bibliographers and newsources <laughs> right. and, 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 but we can all talk to each other and then kind of pool our resources exactly. um, to create more comprehensive, but also more specifically focused editions, which mm-hmm. is part of, I think also what Jose and I were trying to get at. How can we be specific and therefore be more useful to more users? Right. Jose, what's the feedback been since the issue came out? Have you, have you guys received any any comments from friends and colleagues? Sure. It, uh, it, the feedback has been incredibly positive. It's been great to, to you know, get really kind comments from colleagues at, say, conferences and, and academic events um, that, for example, I've been attending on, you know, over the past few months. Uh, well, the past yeah, couple of months since, since the issue uh, appeared. But we, we have also had lots of encouraging messages on social media, I mean, particularly on Twitter, that where you know uh, Cassie and Emma and I, are, uh, the three of us, are very active. Uh, and we just—I mean, I think we're just very pleased that you know the conversation is continuing and that it's not restricted to you know a symposium uh, that happened three years ago, uh, and that we are still talking about this, these issues and, and, and these these things, and, and just thinking of ways uh, to make our work. Uh, you know, more useful uh, for, 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 the, for the, you know, the bigger purpose, uh, which is to, to make the, you know, the wonderful um, drama of the English Renaissance available for a wider, wider audience. Could I just add that we would, we'd, we'd really be keen to continue the conversation and Jose, Emma Smith, and I can all be found on Twitter. Okay. My handle is at Cassie Ash. Jose's is at Jose A. Perez Diaz. And Emma Smith can be found at Fortunatus. Well, that's great. It sounds like the the thing has come together just as just as you planned, just three years in the making. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thank you two for taking some time to talk to us for about this issue today. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. Please visit press.jhu.edu/journals for more information.